0: Today is Wednesday, September the 6th. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key. Do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Award. The personal computer show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were in the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to Hank At PCRadioshow.org. There will be a nationwide all device emergency alert set to scare us all very soon. This is just a drill. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, that's FEMA, and the Federal Communications Commission, that's the FCC, announced that the organizations have scheduled a nationwide test of the emergency alert system and wireless emergency alerts at approximately 2.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Wednesday, October the 4th. So, try not to be alarmed. The wireless emergency alert message will arrive within 30 minutes and should appear on people's cell phones during that time, reading, This is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. The wireless emergency alert portion of the test will send out an emergency alert to all consumer cell phones between 2.20 and 2.50 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The emergency alert system portion will last for one minute as radio and television broadcasters, cable systems, satellite, radio and television providers, and wireless Video providers announce this is a nationwide test of the emergency alert system issued by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is FEMA, covering the United States from 1420 to 1450. That's 220 to 250 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is only a test, no action is required by the public. The test message will display in either English or Spanish depending on the language preference set by the owner of the device. However, if severe weather or another significant event coincidentally occurs, the test will be postponed and rescheduled for Wednesday, October the 11th. So, take note of the date on this. October the 4th, there will be a nationwide or device emergency alert. The tests are being planned to guarantee that the national emergency alert systems work effectively in the event of an actual emergency. Let's hope that this test doesn't get largely mistaken as a real national emergency. The FCC rejected ISPs complaining that listing every fee is too hard. Comcast and other ISPs asked the FCC to ditch listing every fee rule. FCC says no. The Federal Communications Commission rejected requests to eliminate an upcoming requirement that Internet service providers list all of their monthly fees. Five major trade groups representing the United States broadband providers petitioned the FCC in January to scrap the requirements before it takes effect. In June, Comcast told the FCC that listing every fee rule imposes significant administrative burdens and unnecessary complexity in complying with the broadband label requirements. The five trade groups kept up the pressure earlier this month in a meeting with the FCC officials and in a filing that complained that listing every fee is too hard. The FCC refused to bend, announcing that the rules will take effect without major changes. Every consumer needs transparent information when making decisions about what Internet service offering makes the most sense for their family or household. No one wants to be hit with charges they didn't ask for or they did not expect, FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel said. The order largely affirms the rules while making some revisions and clarifications, such as modifying provider record-keeping requirements when directing consumers to a label on an alternative sales channel, and confirming that providers may state taxes included when their price already incorporate taxes, the FCC said. (laughs) ISPs don't want to list all fees. Comcast and other ISPs objected to a requirement that ISPs list all recurring monthly fees, including all charges that providers impose at their discretion. That is to say, charges not mandated by a government. They complained that the rule will force them to display the pass-through of fees imposed by federal, state, or local government agencies on the consumer broadband label. As was previously written, ISPs could simplify billing and comply with the new broadband labeling rules by including all costs in the advertised rates. That would give potential customers a clearer idea of how much they have to pay each month and save ISPs the trouble of listing every charge that they currently choose to break out separately. Rejecting the broadband industry's request, the FCC ordered said, we affirm our requirements that providers display all monthly fees with respect to broadband service on the label to provide consumers with clear and accurate information about the cost of their broadband service. We thus decline providers' request that they not disclose those fees or they instead display an up-to price for certain fees they choose to pass through to consumers. Specifically, providers must itemize the fees they add to base monthly prices, including fees related to government programs they choose to pass through to consumers, such as fees related to universal service or regulatory fees, the FCC said. The FCC was ordered by Congress to implement broadband label rules. The FCC is requiring ISPs to display the labels to consumers at the point of sale and include information such as the monthly price, additional fees, introductory rates, data caps, charges for data coverages, and performance metrics. The FCC rules aren't enforced yet because they are subject to a Federal Office of Management and Budget, that's the OMB, review under the U.S. Paperwork Reduction Act. FCC pointedly says... ISP can simplify pricing. In its dismissal of the broadband industry claims that itemizing fees would be too confusing for customers and too burdensome for providers. The FCC pointedly noted that ISPs are allowed to use a simpler pricing model. We also disagree that clear disclosure of these fees has the potential to cause significant confusion for consumers and add unnecessary complexity for providers Due to the huge variety and quantity of fees on broadband providers, providers must itemize the fees on consumer bills, and we see no reason why consumers cannot assess the fees at the point of sale any less than they can when they receive a bill. Providers are free, of course, to not pass these fees through to consumers to differentiate their pricing and simplify their label display if they believe it will make their service more attractive to consumers and ensure that consumers are not surprised by unexpected charges. Further, we are not persuaded that it would be burdensome for ISPs to itemize on the label those fees they opt to pass along to consumers above the monthly price, particularly since providers acknowledge being able to describe such fees to a consumer over the phone and on a consumer's bill once the consumer subscribes to service. We also find that such burdens are far outweighed by the benefits to consumers when they are shopping for service. ISPs could alternatively row such discretionary fees into the base monthly price, thereby eliminating the need to itemize them on the label. Separately, the order said, the FCC rejected a wireless industry request to include potentially complex and lengthy details about data allowances on the label and instead affirm that providers can make those details available to consumers on a linked website. To maintain simplicity, the labels must identify the amount of data included and disclose any charges or reductions in service for any data used in excess of the amount included in the plan, the FCC said. Well, in New York State, one of the surcharge fee is for the New York State 15% business tax it is listed as a surcharge on your bill. It is not a tax deductible item for the consumer. However, the company can take that as a deductible item. That means I'm paying the tax for the company. ISP shouldn't complain about detailing monthly fees that have no description. The FCC approves a plan to make wireless home internet even faster and bring it to more Americans. The Federal Communications Commission took the next step in speeding up wireless home internet last week. The FCC approved testing for a new six gigahertz band, a faster version of the current wireless home internet bands, according to Telecompetitor. The six gigahertz band would create more airwave space for companies wanting to sell wireless home internet, this means less competition among signals and faster, more reliable internet connectivity for users. The new 6 GHz band offers four times the total space available, with the available 2.4 and 5 GHz bands. Wi-Fi fishers hope that even after 6 GHz routers become more common, the sheer amount of space will keep signals fast and strong. In 2020, The FCC voted to open up spectrum space in the 6 GHz for unlicensed use, including standard power operations and low-power indoor operations. The vote, according to The Verge, is the biggest spectrum addition since the advent of Wi-Fi in 1989. At that time, it was limited to indoor use only. Now, in 2023, the FCC has approved plans to use this for full-power outdoor use to deliver wireless home internet. Right now, the FCC has approved 13 companies to test this internet, including Google, Nokia, Qualcomm, and more. The important thing for cord cutters looking at using wireless home internet is this new 6 gigahertz standard offers greater range versus current options used by many home internet services. This could bring wireless internet to move cord cutters who currently live outside of the ranges that current wireless options offer. Currently, this FCC approval is for testing. But it is the first step to making this commercially available to Americans looking for new internet options. Google unveils new feature that reveals the best time of year to book flights. Travelers are forking out big money for airfares at the moment, but a new Google tool may help with snagging cheaper flights. While Google Flights already show whether current prices for your flight search are low, typical, or high compared to past averages for the same route, it can now tell you the cheapest time to book trips. According to its reliable trend data, the new search function offers insights on whether the prices are overblown or at a discount. For example, these insights could tell you that the cheapest time to book similar trips is usually two months before departure, and you're currently in that sweet spot, Google said in the blog. Or you might learn that prices have usually dropped closer to takeoff, so you decide to wait before booking. Either way, you can make that decision with the greatest sense of confidence. To help with this, travelers can turn on price tracking on Google Flights to receive automatic notification for when fares drop significantly on chosen destination and dates. Users will be notified via email, providing they are signed up with Google. If you aren't tied down to any specific dates, users can turn on any dates to receive emails about deals anytime in the next three to six months. If you spot a rainbow price guarantee badge on certain flights, It means Google is confident the fare will not drop. However, if you do book and that specific flight does drop, the tech titan will pay you the difference. When you book one of these flights, we'll monitor the price every day before takeoff, and if the price goes down, we'll pay you back the difference via Google Pay, the blog explains. However, as of now, the price guarantees are only part of the pilot program available for a select group of flights, the United States. Meanwhile also revealed other tips to help you travel on a budget. Last year we shared money-saving insights based on historical pricing trends on Google Flights, the blog continued. We ran the numbers again and with the latest data and most of the tips from 2022 still hold true. Taking a layover or avoiding weekend departures are among the best ways to save on your next flight booking. However, It noted that the best time to book flights for holiday season is in early October. Average prices tend to be lowest 71 days before departure, a big change from our 2022 insights, which found that average prices were lowest just 22 days before departure, and the typical low price range is now 54 to 78 days before takeoff. OneDrive is the latest cloud provider to kill unlimited storage. Microsoft is putting a cap on OneDrive for Business Storage, which is Plan 2 for new customers. Microsoft has discontinued its unlimited cloud storage offering with OneDrive for Business Plan 2. New users are now limited to OneDrive for Business Plan 1 if they don't want to subscribe to the entire Microsoft 365 suite but cloud storage is limited to one terabyte. Nonetheless, existing OneDrive for Business Plan 2 users will be able to keep their offer for the time being. Some of the big names in the cloud storage service have learned the hard way that there is no such thing as a free lunch. If you offer unlimited storage, a few people will take you at your word and start hoarding files. That is why Google ended unlimited storage for photo users two years ago. And most recently, Dropbox followed suit by killing off its unlimited storage plan for its business-oriented advanced option. If you're one of those disgruntled users who are planning to switch to some of the leading cloud storage options, like OneDrive, then you might want to think twice, as Microsoft has become the latest provider to discontinue unlimited cloud storage. It turns out the software giant has quietly ditched OneDrive for Business Plan 2. That tier previously allowed users to store as much data as they liked on Microsoft servers for just $10 per user per month, assuming their organization was eligible. This means new customers will only be able to sign up for one standalone option. OneDrive for Business Plan 1, this plan costs $5 a month per user, but cloud storage is capped at one terabyte. Depending on the number of users, a company storage allowance can reach five terabytes. Based on a cache webpage via archived.org, the unlimited storage option was removed sometime in July. In a statement, a Microsoft representative explained that the company has streamlined the purchasing process for customers who use OneDrive for business standalone plans. That said... Microsoft will continue to allow existing OneDrive for Business Plan 2 subscribers to renew their license and add users. The Redmond-based firm didn't say why it's killing off a beloved OneDrive tier for businesses that don't want to subscribe to the entire Microsoft 365 suite. Microsoft has done this before when it discontinued unlimited OneDrive storage for Office 365 customers in 2015. These types of offers are a great way to attract new customers, but they're not sustainable in the long run. Still, a terabyte of storage is still more than enough for most people. But the removal of the unlimited tier is a blow to Microsoft's competitive position in a crowded cloud storage field. Microsoft is killing off WordPad in Windows. WordPad is a basic word processor available in every version of Microsoft's operating systems since Windows 95. It can be used to create and modify documents. Although slower to load than Notepad, it can handle graphics and rich formatting, unlike Notepad, along with handling larger files. WordPad is well preferred for taking quick notes and text-based writing. WordPad is a free word processing program included with all Windows computers. Because Windows already has a built-in word processor, one does not necessarily need Office Word for basic word processing tasks. Word has many advanced features that WordPad lacks, but those features are not necessary for the simple tasks of basic word processing. Unfortunately, Microsoft is dropping WordPad, which was released in 1995. They are now recommending you use Notepad, which is only a text editor. Microsoft has announced the imminent demise of WordPad in Windows. The application won't be receiving updates moving forward. Microsoft has quietly announced the end of WordPad for Windows, urging users to migrate to Microsoft Word or Notepad for document editing in different formats. Although Microsoft Word is the app of choice when it comes to viewing and writing documents, Windows 10 ships with Notepad and WordPad, which, while not as powerful as the Office app, but they can be quite useful in many scenarios. It's difficult to say if the move will impact a significant portion of Windows users. As Microsoft has mentioned, there are other alternatives to WordPad out there. That said, the software does have historical importance. It's shipped with Windows 95 along with the first version of Internet Explorer it replaced Microsoft Write as the basic word processor that comes bundled with Windows almost three decades ago. Although WordPad has received a few minor updates over the years, it's mostly a relic at this point, since its functionalities have been surpassed easily by alternative and arguably better software. It could have been useful for people who wanted a free word processor capable of handling rich text formats, but even those can now be managed through the Office web apps, available for free on the cloud. Those who prefer to leverage software installed locally on their machine can also use open-source suites like LibreOffice. However, they can only be useful in their own category because even though their names are similar, they both have different purposes, for instance. WordPad is a word processing application that supports formatting and several other rich text features, while Notepad is a text editor meant only to write plain text. While WordPad has historical importance, it has become outdated compared to alternative software options that offer more features and capabilities. Users can now easily manage rich text formats through Office web apps or utilize open source suites like LibreOffice for local document editing. Microsoft has quietly updated one of its support documents to highlight that WordPad has reached the end of the road on Windows. The application will no longer be updated and will be removed completely in a future release of the operating system. The company is yet to reveal concrete timelines for this deprecation process, but it has urged customers who want to open rich text document extensions like .doc and .rtf to migrate to Microsoft Word and for those who utilize plain text documents in the TXT format to leverage Notepad instead. It's seemingly the season of deprecations and removal when it comes to software developed by big tech. A few days ago, Microsoft made a surprise announcement that it is killing off Visual Studio for Mac. Prior to that, it also revealed a list of features that it is sunsetting in Microsoft Edge around the time Google announced the end of the Pixel Pass subscription, too. Now, Microsoft has decided to get rid of WordPad for Windows. This is analogous to replacing the Honda Fit with the Bugatti Chiron as a commuter vehicle to get to the railroad station each working day. Remember, what Big Tech giveth for free, they can also take it away with or without notice. There is really no free lunch. Companies are now quiet-cutting workers. Here's what that term quiet-cutting means. Some companies are reassigning workers in a way that's sending them mixed messages. Emails informing employees that their current job role has been eliminated, but that they have not been fired, are leaving those staff members with a feeling of confusion, fear, and anger. Dubbed quiet-cutting. This latest outgrowth of the quiet cutting movement effectively allows companies to cut jobs and trim costs without actually laying off workers. The strategy is gaining traction as a restructuring move. Companies including Adidas, Adobe, IBM, and Salesforce are among employers that have restructured its workforces in this way over the past year. Financial research platform AlphaSense found that over the last year, such assignments have more than tripled. Quiet cutting taps into workers' fear of layoffs at their company. Amid a weakening job market, while reassigned workers remain employed, the reassignments often land them in rows with titles that are less prestigious, come with lower pay, and are more demanding. They recounted getting a phone call or an email from a manager basically telling them, your job has been reassigned and you will be doing this from now on and basically take it or leave it. Career reporters with the Wall Street Journal, Ray Smith, who first reported on the trend, had told this to CBS News. According to Smith, some individuals initially felt relieved they weren't being axed, but on the other side, they were angry or confused, and they felt the new job they had was either lower status or lower pay, or more responsibilities, or something that they didn't even have experience in, Smith said and so they were really angry at the companies about this. Smith spoke to some workers who said the backhanded demotions took a toll on their mental health. Their identity is tied up with their titles and the work they do, and if you're suddenly being told to do something else, especially if it's a demotion, it can send you spiraling and wondering, what the heck is the message that the company is sending to me? Passive-aggressive termination. Quietly cut workers also feared that employers were trying to force them into work roles in which they would be so miserable they would eventually quit, according to Smith. It's sort of like pushing you into this corner and saying, if you don't take it, you have to leave, Smith said, adding that no company will say we're quietly cutting people. It is a sort of a reduction in workforce, almost in a passive, aggressive way, he said. The bottom line is, if someone who refuses a reassignment or eventually leaves after not liking the reassignment. Once they leave, the company doesn't have to pay thousands of dollars in severance costs, so it actually saves them in costs," says Smith. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell.
1: This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we spend just a few minutes talking about computers, the workplace, technology, and how that all intertwines. Dennis reached out to me with a question. Can, or rather, should I, use my company-issued laptop for personal usage outside... The outside of business hours. Do I need management permission or is this a given attitude? Let's let's start off with the official side. Okay, the, 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 this has to do with clear policies and guidelines. And yes, some companies have clear policies that go in one direction or the other. They talk about just completely prohibiting or restricting the use of company resources for personal activities. So, in that case, follow those. Other companies say, yes, you can go ahead and do it. Others, well, it, you know, it, it goes in that middle line where they don't really say it and they don't really not say it. And there's, you know, there's a lot of talk. You know, some, some companies say, go ahead, do it all you want as long as it doesn't interfere with work responsibilities. And just use moderation. Just use discretion. You know, I, I I struggle with the latter part. And that's what most of the rest of this is going to be about. First starters, we, we have to talk about security. We have to talk about confidentiality. And when you started with wherever you're working at, you are dealing with a, a company where you want to remain secure. You want the company to remain secure. If the company is secure, you have a future. If you open up the company to malware. you you go and this is on your personal time and you open up the company to malware, you could wind up getting in trouble for something you did in your off hours. Yeah, that's not good. All right. so there are all kinds of different security measures that they put in place and they've got anti-malware software and they've got all of this uh, it, all of these different firewalls and everything else that'll shut things down. This doesn't matter. All of all of the different things that are going on here are really of concern. And and that security issue needs to be thought of first. Then we talk about confidentiality. Okay, let's let's be real. The IT department, yes, they they probably are not going after your individual computer. But do you want to put anything on Your work laptop that has to do with your personal finances, your uh, personal uh, interests after hours? Do you want to get involved with all kinds of Facebook conversations? I'm using a very soft word there, conversations uh, on a company-associated laptop. See, people can see what you're doing. Your management may be able to see what you're doing. So you're dealing with all sorts of sensitive personal information. You're engaging in activities that your boss has no need to know. And then we get into the next level. We have to talk about work-life balance. So, yeah, you've got your work laptop. Why are you introducing life into work? Why are you choosing to blur the boundaries between your work and personal life? See, this direction can lead to all kinds of problems. It can lead to burnout. It can lead to stress. I've heard this time and time again from people where they, they've blurred that line And you don't want any part of blurring that line. You need to be carving out a dedicated time and location for personal away from any of the work devices. I have a company-issued smartphone. And I am on call at certain times uh, about every, every month or so. I am on call. And when I'm on call, I will carry around two cell phones two smartphones. I'm carrying this around because I separate my work from my personal activities. During the rest of the time, during the rest of the month, I can separate, I can disconnect from all of the professional obligations, and I can rebuild and rejuvenate myself for the next day's challenges. So where does my work phone sit? It sits on my desk. When I'm not on call, I'm choosing to maintain the life part of my work-life balance. Lastly, we have to talk about professionalism and perception, and using your company laptop for anything outside of work hours may reflect poorly on your professionalism and your commitment to the company, to the job. It may... Give people this idea that you're not fully focused on your work responsibilities. Look, I know there are times when we goof off and there are times when we do things that are apart from work. But do you want a whole lot of that sitting on your laptop? Do you want at a point in time for somebody to be looking at your laptop and they see all of this different stuff? Look, it it may seem like it is harmless, To catch up on your personal emails. To browse all of the different social media on your laptop. It may seem like it's not a big deal. But I want you to remember that it's important that others may look at this completely differently. And it doesn't matter whether it's IT, your colleagues, or your boss. They may question your dedication. They may wonder if you're truly prioritizing work over personal Or if you're allowing your personal to impede on the value that you deliver to the company, that can get kind of scary, kind of in a bad place that you don't want to go. Dennis, thank you for reaching out on that question. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Hank, back to you. Thank you, Benjamin.
0: The Labor Day return-to-office mandates are facing resistance from employees and are not necessarily leading to a return to the pre-COVID workplace. While employers may want people back on the premises for the benefits of in-person collaboration and serendipitous conversations, employees have valid reasons for pushing back against a full return to the office. The trend is many companies are requiring employees to return to the office. This shift comes after a period where many companies offered remote work options during the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the FLEX report, which tracks employment from 4,000 companies globally, more than half of employees still aren't in the office full time. Even after three years of companies cajoling, enticing and demanding their return, The report also found that a third of employees are in hybrid remote arrangements. This information suggests that despite companies' efforts to bring employees back to the office, a significant portion of the workforce continues to prefer remote or hybrid work arrangements. It's worth noting that the transition back to the office is a complex process that requires considering the preferences and needs of both employers and the employees. Some companies have successfully implemented hybrid work models that combine remote and in-office work, allowing employees to have more flexibility while still maintaining some level of in-person collaboration. This approach recognizes the benefits of remote work while also acknowledging the value of face-to-face interactions and teamwork. According to recent reports, office Vacancy rates have reached an all-time high this year, exceeding 20 percent in certain major cities. This indicates that a significant number of office spaces are currently unoccupied. Additionally, a new bank rate survey revealed that 81 percent of employees expressed a desire for a permanent hybrid workweek. This suggests that a majority of employees are interested in having a reduced work schedule, potentially allowing for more flexibility and work-life balance. These findings highlight the evolving preferences of employees regarding their work arrangements. The high office vacancy rates may be a reflection of companies re-evaluating their real estate needs as they adapt to changing work dynamics and employee demands. The desire for a hybrid work week indicates a growing interest in alternative work schedules that prioritizes flexibility and well-being. As companies continue to navigate the post-pandemic work landscape, it is likely that these employee preferences will influence the decisions made by employers regarding office space utilization and work schedule options. In the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, the workplace has experienced a transformation that has redefined our understanding of work-life balance and productivity. And it's time to acknowledge there is no going back to the pre-pandemic era of work schedule. While remote work has its advantages, it is recognized that being physically present in the office is essential for certain aspects of work, mentoring, collaboration, sharing a common culture, and those serendipitous hallway conversations that spark new ideas are all enhanced when we are together in person. These invaluable interactions foster creativity, innovation, and teamwork, which are difficult to replicate through virtual means. Research has shown that relying solely on platforms like Zoom can be a creativity killer. While video conferencing tools have allowed us to maintain communication during the, the pandemic, They often fall short in providing the same level of creativity and spontaneity found in face-to-face interactions. Implementing a hybrid workweek offers numerous benefits for both employees and the organization as a whole. It allows for a better work-life balance, giving employees an additional day to rest, recharge, and pursue personal interests. This improved balance ultimately leads to increased job satisfaction, higher productivity, and reduced burnout. Moreover, a compressed work week encourages employees to optimize their time and prioritize tasks, leading to enhanced efficiency and creativity during their designated work days. Being together in the office is crucial for certain aspects of work. Remote work has its limitations, particularly when it comes to fostering creativity and collaboration. By embracing a hybrid work model, one can strike the perfect balance between in-person interaction and the flexibility that remote work offers. In recent times, remote jobs have become a significant part of our work culture, and it's evident that they are here to stay. It's not just about the conveniences of remote work. Research has shown that employees are more productive when working from home, with the elimination of commuting adding valuable hours to their days. The push for remote work reflects a deeper issue, a lack of trust from employers, which is further highlighted by the success of the hybrid work week. Studies have consistently shown that productivity remains the same or even improves with a reduced work week, while employees experience reduced stress and improve work-life balance. Back to the office mandates can feel arbitrary, indicating a lack of confidence in employees' ability to perform their duties remotely. This lack of trust can be demoralizing and detrimental to employees' morale. Instead, employers should focus on fostering a culture of trust and empowerment, allowing employees to choose the work environment that suits them best. By trusting employees to manage their time effectively and focusing on results rather than arbitrary mandates. Organizations can foster a culture of empowerment and productivity. Organizations can reap the benefits of increased productivity, improved employee satisfaction, and overall success in the evolving world of work. Remote jobs means more diverse workforces. Flexibility also leads to a more diverse workforce, giving employers a larger pool of potential hires. Women, especially those with kids at home, along with people of color, are more likely to prefer remote work. A LinkedIn analysis found that job listings for remote positions attract proportionally more diverse candidates. Indeed, women are participating in the workforce at unprecedented levels right now, with new records set in April, May, and June, a major reason the flexible or remote work options that started during the pandemic, combined with the end of COVID-19 restrictions, which means kids are back at school, camp, or daycare. That said, remote work changed some people's expectations about what work could be like and could do it's just educated some people about themselves and work life and what they prefer. It is suggested that employers treat employees as partners rather than subordinates. Get the employees involved in the discussion. Hear from them. What do they think works best? Can the employer put themselves in the employee position? Empathy is really important. The bottom line is, use this moment to build a new way of working rather than trying the impossible task of bouncing back. This does not necessarily mean doing away with the office altogether, but it does mean letting go of obsolete ideas and rethinking the structure of the workplace. Only then can we figure out a workplace that truly works, for all of us. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston
1: Marty Winston joins me now, and Marty, what do you have for us this week?
2: Oh, let's start with the meter wireless meat thermometer. If you got a grill, an oven, a broiler for a mm-hmm. lot of that stuff, meter, what you cook me, a, a meter, meter
1: as an as a meter.
2: Yeah, okay. M E T E R. Okay. Meter. All right, and, go on. You know, start with meat. Add an E R to the end. You got meter. That's cordless temperature probes, Bluetooth. Okay. Uh, actually, they're advanced meat thermometers. They track both the ambient temperature around them in the grill chamber and the temperature at the probe at the end that's inside the meat because it's probe. You know, that's yeah, how it yeah, works. Yeah, okay. They come with some handsome wooden charging blocks. They use common alkaline batteries to give the cell inside the probe enough of a charge to last a full day. The original mm-hmm. meter is about $70. uses Bluetooth for a 33-foot range to its app in your handset. The meter plus about $110 gets 165 foot range by putting a Bluetooth relay in its charging block. But if you're cooking more meat for more people, go with the meter block about 300 bucks. Mm-hmm. Not just because it comes with four of the probes, but because it bridges Bluetooth to Wi-Fi and lets you track temperatures and get alerts without being leashed to the grill.
1: Yeah, they, you know, the Bluetooth limitations, you know, it's, yeah, uh, yeah you, you got to stay right there. But, you know, okay, I, I like that Wi-Fi yeah. approach. Yeah. Uh, okay. Check
2: online. There, There are some bundles or bargains. It's grilling season and you kind of expect that. Sure, yeah. Uh, Meanwhile, for those of you who like to do photography, videography, the Zhiyun. This is is me. This is (laughs) my ears just perked up. Okay. The Zhiyun Molas G60 Combo Studio and Field Lighting Kit. Now, I don't have time for an intro on the principles of lighting for film and video. Uh, I had to learn by doing. And whether you learned another way or want to learn by doing, There's a box full of uh, of answer from Gion, that's Mm Z-H-I-Y-U-N. The box is their MOLUS, M-O-L-U-S, G60 combo. The heart of it is a 60-watt cooled LED about the size of a rounded Rubik's Cube. You can Mm not set the brightness 0 to 100%, set the color temperature from 2,700 to 6,500 degrees Kelvin. Okay, nice. With color quality indexes in the high 90s.
1: Nice, Okay.
2: Yeah, at 100% intensity and a daylight 6,500K color temperature, the LED delivers 2,376 lux, or kick that up to 20, uh, yeah, uh, kick that up by 20, 11,194 when you add the small reflector in the kit. Photo Buffs will appreciate having both ZY and Bowens mounts. The Mm -hmm. full kit has Mm -hmm. the light charger, reflector, diffusion dome, mini softbox, mini tripod, and a bag for it all. It comes with a twenty four volt DC adapter, or you can use one of the heftier USB C charging ports with PD power delivery. Almost anyone's photo skills can enjoy a huge pro slanted boost with a Gion Molas G sixty combo kit about two hundred and fifty bucks at Amazon. Okay. All right. That'll so, are coming up, tell people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, in, in photography, the more light that you can throw at something, especially for multiple directions, the, the, that's going to be very good. So, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm
2: Definition. liking the sound of
1: that. I'm going to, I'm going to check that out. It, it, spell that for
2: me once more, though. Z H I Y U N M O L U S. And, and, uh,
1: uh, two words. Okay. Zhiyun Z- 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 Molus.
2: Okay. Zhiyun Molus. Just send me your UPS shipping info. I'll send you this one. All right. Uh, meanwhile, Baseus also sent their AP01 handheld vacuum. Now, you- do you remember record players? Your, your, yes. Your, your grandparents bought hit records at stores, and that's how they played them. The smaller records were singles, just one tune on them, and they uh-huh. had larger holes in the middle. They would spin at 45 RPM mm-hmm. as revolutions permitted. And I just got in something that spins at 45,000 RPM, and in my experience, sets a record for suction from a portable rechargeable car vacuum. It's not really a record. Uh the brand is spelled B-A-S-E-U-S, pronounced Basios. That's the Basios APO1 handy vacuum with enough suction to pull gravel off your car's floor mats. Shape is roughly a 3.7-inch diameter, 14.5-inch long cylinder with rounded ends and a carve-out section that gives you a ergon- uh, fairly ergonomic handle. It has a slide in flat snorkel nozzle with a slide on brush head. It uses removable dust bags. That's kind of cool for these little guys. Mm -hmm. You can empty them or you can reuse them if you want or just throw them away. It comes with 15 of them. It also has a washable filter inside and delivers one of the most dust free emptying experiences of any small handheld vacuum. USB-C recharges it for about 25 minutes of runtime per charge, more time than any task I'd use it for. Uh, So the Basias ApO one handy vacuum is about sixty bucks on Amazon.
1: Okay, so so yeah, I mean we're we're dealing with a handheld vacuum. Uh, you you, you, you kind of went to that that concept of that twenty five minutes. You're right, uh, you know, uh, vacuuming out the car or going after the individual stairs at home or something. Unless you've got a lot of stairs, you get tons of staircases.
2: Tons of stairs. Yeah, well, Asher did our design, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <you>. <laughs> Just keep
1: going, keep going down the stairs. Don't go up. You you don't want to wear yourself out. You know. <laughs>
2: Sideways works. <laughs> <Yes>.
1: ah. <laughs> oh, man. So you, you went all over the place. A meat thermometer in a lighting kit and a handheld vacuum. I'm wondering what we've got in store for next week. Mm. We'll, we'll find out. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winst. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, tri state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. Happy to report that the Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey website is back online. What happened? ACGNJ needed to renew the registration of the website. They could not locate or reach the club member who is the website administrator. He had for years maintained the website. The club had difficulty with GoDaddy as they won't deal with anyone else other than the listed administrator. They finally were able to locate the club member administrator and the site and data are back online. A valuable lesson learned for all the clubs. TED-Ed Connect has a meeting Thursday, September the 7th, the time of the meeting is 7 p.m., and it is an online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is wpcug.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, September the 8th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The Kingsbyte Computer Club meets Tuesday, September the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., and they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant, located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. For more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, September the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Brookdale Computer Users Group meets Thursday, September the 28th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., it's an online virtual meeting via Jitsi, and the website is acgnj.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.